Hi everyone, I'm Josh. And I'm Jim. And this is the Dapper Meeple. This show is about our love of gaming, the games we play, and the gaming community around this passion. So pull up a chair, put on your favorite hat, and join us at the table. Hey kids, remember, this is an adult podcast and may contain adult language. Also, Dapper Meeple hat, not required. On today's show, we're going to talk about some options if you're looking for something different to run at your table. And then we'll review Rising Sun from Simon Games and give you our impressions so you can decide if you want to check it out. And we're going to introduce our Know Your Character segment, where we'll give you a possible NPC that you can slip into your home game. All that, plus our Kickstarter roundup on this episode of The Dapper Meeple. April 28th was National Superhero Day. So we got to discuss the age-old question. If you could choose, what superpowers would you have and why? So is it multiple superpowers or are we? do you have to pick one? I'll give you a set. Like, it could be one if it's good enough. But you know how some people had to have, like, a set? Uh, I don't, I don't think, I don't really have a set in mind. I feel like something like regeneration would be like something very good, like from any point. Sure. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, it's a classic. And I mean, that's that's all survivability. Right. And given that, you would assume that longevity of life would come from that, which I would then in turn, you would be able to you could learn so many skills. You could like become a master at so many things. Uh, almost you wouldn't need another superpower necessarily. I feel like that's kind of like a one and done sort of you thing. You could just be really rich and really smart. Yeah. So, I mean, so you're just going to turn yourself into Batman. It's just going to take you like 150 years to exactly. get there. Exactly. But you have that time. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. not a big deal. Okay. That's good. That's a good one. Um, mine's always been time manipulation. That would be the one that I would pick hands down because I just feel like, first of all, time is this construct that we made up. So, if I'm able to control it, I'm controlling something that's universal, right? So freezing time and being able to move freely back and forth, rewinding it, I think that would be what I would want. So ever since the that show Heroes came out, right, right, um, save, you know, the, that was, save the cheerleader, save the world, yeah, yeah, that right. was canceled prematurely. You know, we're dating ourselves, uh, right? Um, the the guy who could control time in that. I always had questions like, how does that affect the person controlling time? Right? I've thought about this a lot. Because not only that, if I'm working time, does it affect the entire universe? What's my range? Right? That's another big question that I have. That's fair. Because if, let's say you only had a mile radius, right? If you stop time in that mile radius, like if you did it enough, could conceivably those people... Like they would live a lot longer in like the general time frame of the world, just because they haven't cashed in as much time. It, yeah, exactly. I like that. But I don't know. I would like to have it stretch everywhere, or just allow me to step in and out of the timeline. That's what I think would be the way to go, where I could remove myself from the timeline, manipulate stuff around me, and then step back in. Yeah, I, I think that would probably be the easiest way, without having to get into. A lot of discussions about how it affects other people. Right, and way more science than we're qualified to bring onto the show. So, I was thinking about that this week, so I wanted to see where your answer was. I think this is an important question for anybody out there that's single. I don't care about horoscopes. I don't care about which Mario Kart character you want to play. You need to know (laughs) 
what your partner's superpower is going to be. We don't know how things are going to go. And if we get flooded with radiation and we all start popping off. Hey, who knows the long-term effects of the vaccine? We might actually end up all developing superpowers. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we'll see. But back to uh, to other topics. Uh, so you were telling me that you were reading an article uh, that was talking about um, – not only the how influential a good DM is on a party, but also how much of an effect a good player has on a game. Right. So, I mean, we've all been talking for, you know, the last couple of years. You know, anybody that's played RPGs has heard of the Mercer effect, right? And how new people are coming into D&D and they're coming in after watching Critical Role, which... I mean, it's fantastic. I, I love the cast. I love what they do. Um, I know there's been some people have had some issues with some of the stuff they've done, but there's always going to be, you know, questions and stuff when you're doing a live format like that. Um, but overall, I, I like where the, the heart of that team is. But let's be honest, the people in Critical Role are not typical for gamers, right? First of all, the people in Critical Role are really pretty. And a lot of us are not. That's that's true. They're also professional voice actors. And that's the other part. That's and, huge. Yeah, they're used to playing other characters, being in character. Not, I mean, not necessarily coming up with things off the top of their head necessarily, but just that act of having to practice for a voice to get into that character. Uh, right. I think that contributes a lot to their role playing. Sure, absolutely. And we talked about that. A good DM is important for a good session. And the article I was reading is, sure, but so are good players. And it gave like a list of six things that, you know, you want to see in a good player. They're paying attention. They read their character sheet. Hint, hint. Obviously, we can see that as a uh, a, a sour spot. Um, Not but- sour, just want to emphasize it. <laughs> like when you had those teachers that used to stomp on the ground when they gave you the answers. That's how to have a good game with me. <laughs> but uh, I think there is definitely some some truth to that point. Because trying to place the uh, all the pressure of a good game on a DM I think is unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, because as we all know, role-playing games are really about telling a collaborative story. Sure, exactly. Um, it's just as much on the DM to create that world as it is for the players to take initiative and interact with it. Right. Um, there's nothing worse than having like all of these things laid out and kind of planned out as a DM only to have your players just kind of sit there and stare blankly at you and not interact with the world that you've kind of given them to work in. Right. Like them not taking the hook. Like there's only so much I want to do as a DM. I don't want to railroad you into my story, no matter how good I think it is and what I have set up for you. I want players to be interactive as well, and I want them to get involved, and I want them to say, okay, well, I am an adventurer because 90% of them are orphans, um, which is something that's just about to be outlawed at my table. Like, no, no, you will all have happy childhoods, and then you will go adventuring. <laughs> um, so for you, when you're talking about what makes a good player, what what do you look for in a good player? Um, I, I really think it's somebody who is willing to to really interact with the world. Um, and that can take, you know, whatever form it does, depending on what their character is not giving license to those people or it's what my character would do, Right. you know, interacting in the world in such a way that 
you are able to build that story with them. Because one of the best parts is not having planned every single thing that is coming up in the session, but being able to roll with whatever your players are wanting to do. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. A good role-playing session, when your player pulls something out that you're not expecting, that it has influence on the story, like that is a huge like win for me when I'm sitting at a table. Yeah, I remember in our game when we were playing in uh, the Ravnica setting, mm-hmm. um, we had the the gods from Amonkhet, and after you guys defeated one, um, our barbarian was like, "Hey, is his spear still there?" And you know, and that's that's the kind of questions that things like that sometimes you don't think about as a DM as you're trying to kind of outline and plan some of the bigger things. It was one of those, you know what? Sure, it's there on the ground, and you go ahead take it. You know, and of course it was cursed because why? wouldn't it be um but those are the kind of things that allow you to really develop that story beyond just a a railroading situation right because at the end of the day if you have everything planned out as a dm and you write the whole story yourself without player interaction you might as well just write a book right i think that's what they call those when you write your own story they call those books yeah that that seems like a thing i would call it but <laughs> but that's that's the whole thing with rpgs is it allows um you to sit down with other people and as the dm you kind of kick it off but really a good player is one who will pick up that kind of prompt that you've given them and run with it again my big thing is uh knowing your sheet knowing what you can do um, and then it falls on us to, to, I mean, if you want to come up with an idea and play the rule of cool with me, I am all about it. You know, I think, I think my character in that game, um, exercised that freedom as much as he absolutely could. Um, and it came up with a lot of really interesting scenarios that I, I don't think you saw coming. And <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's exactly, I mean, that kind of thing. I'm very much one of those people, one of those DMs who enjoy that surprise. Right. right? If right. if it is even remotely feasible in my game, if if some way we can make it work, whether it is, you know, through magic, because obviously magic covers a multitude of sins um, or something along those lines, uh, I really try to make it work with the players. One of the games I'm playing in right now, we have a character um, who is a mage. And the person, I think it's their first time playing. And every now and then, there'll be this, I'm just going to produce whiskey. And our DM's like, run with it. And it's not something that is a mechanic in the game, but it's not game-breaking. And it's fun. And it's part becomes part of the story now. So it's been great for stuff like that, too. So, yeah, definitely interaction. I want my players, like, you're coming to play with me and tell this story, like you said. So we've already talked a lot about some of the systems that we like. Uh, Of course, 5th edition is a big one for us. But I really enjoy getting to expand my storytelling and gaming and getting to see different systems. Like I said, I've played a couple of different ones like Delta Green and Fate Core. Um, So what I wanted to do was look up a few systems that are out there and give you guys an idea of something else you may want to go try. So I've got three systems out. Two of them are available right now. Uh, one of them just finished up their Kickstarter, and I'm going to start off with that. Coyote and Crow. 
Now, this one was written by Connor Alexander. So this system was created and led by a team of Native Americans, and it is a tabletop role-playing game set in an alternate future of the Americas where colonization never occurred. Their advanced civilization arose over hundreds of years with a massive climate disaster that changed history of the planet. You're playing as adventurers starting out in the city of Chicoa, a bustling, diverse metropolis along the Mississippi River. It's a world of science and spirituality, where the future and technology, as well as legends from the past, collide. I really liked looking at this one on Kickstarter. I backed this one, so I'm waiting to get it. And one of the things that they did in their Kickstarter is you could buy the hardcover book. You could also donate it to a reservation library. Right. I I like this. um, Some of the stuff that I've read about this whole system and setting and everything. Mm. It's very unique from kind of some of the things we have right now, uh, which is absolutely wonderful. I love that there's been kind of this renaissance of gaming that has really happened over the past few years. um, And it's been able to bring things like this to the forefront where new developers, new designers are finally giving it an opportunity and platform to really create something unique. Uh, and I think this one is one of those, one of those items that is definitely unique. I'm interested to see kind of what the full system looks like once they actually begin, you know, printing and shipping and all stuff, which I believe is later this year, correct? Yes. December of this year is when they're expected to ship. So once we get our hands on that, we'll definitely take a look at that, probably included in one of our reviews in an episode in the future. But this is definitely one of those things that I I want to take a look at. I want to want to play along in it, just kind of experience some more about it. I like that the team of it was not only created and led by Native Americans, but they're including that opportunity to donate a copy of it to a reservation library. Right. Um, that is very, very just unique and excellent. One thing that I hope um, is the mixture here between kind of like a steampunk type futuristic right? Um, with that spirituality is really brought, you know, and, and brought together well. Like you said, it, it seems like it's unique. And I love when we still get new stuff that isn't just a carbon copy of something we've already done. So I think that's really going to be great. If you're interested, go to Kickstarter, search for Coyote and Crow. They are taking pre-orders now. So 50 bucks for a book. And that's the hardcover. I think it's 100 or so for a book and the PDF if you want to get that. Um, but definitely go and check them out. The next two that we got are both from Modifius Games. They produce a lot. I went on their website and there were games that I was not aware that are out there. Um, they're putting out a Fallout, which we may talk about a little bit later. They have the Conan series as well as the Star Trek game. And most of them are based around their own system, which is the 2D20 system. So the first one I want to talk about is Dune Adventures in the Imperium. I am a huge Dune fan. It's based off of the work of Frank Herbert, what some call the most influential sci-fi work of all time. It was published in 1965, and there have been a host of sequels and works written by Frank Herbert himself, as well as his son, and that saga stretches well over tens of thousands of years in the distant future. In that future, the galaxy is run by noble houses, all kept in check by this powerful emperor who is often corrupt. The driving force behind so much of this galaxy 
is a substance known as melange, or simply spice, and it is found in the southern hemisphere of only one planet, Arrakis, colloquially known as Dune, a desert planet where it never rains and the vast seas of sands are inhabited by massive worms that can reach 1,300 feet long. The spice itself is a substance that extends human life, it grants powers and visions, and it allows for the mutated navigators of the Spacers Guild to fold time and space, allowing for instantaneous travel across the galaxy. This world is so rich and so deep. Now, a lot of people know this from the 1980s movie that uh, David Lynch did, which I like that movie, but I have to admit that it's pretty much a fever dream. There was a lot that went on in the editing, I think, that really hurt it. And then the Sci-Fi Channel did a miniseries where it was basically a remake. And most people seem to appreciate that one much more. In October, I believe this year, we're getting a new version of it. And I think it's finally getting the cinematic opportunity that it needs. Um, Denny Villeneuve is the director and the cast includes uh, Timothy Chalamet, uh, Jason Momoa, Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin, Oscar Isaacs, Zendaya. The cast is amazing. It looks fantastic. And now with this, you get the opportunity to play in that world. And what I really like about the game system that they have up is you play as agents, but you also have resources. So you play as architects or agents. In the architect level of the game, it's like you marshalling your resources, whether you're playing as a spy master and you're moving spies into place or you're moving troops or you're moving smugglers, you can attack missions that way or you can do it as the agents, which is a more typical role-playing genre where you actually get your hands dirty. That's interesting. I haven't actually looked at this one very much. Um, I am kind of familiar with the series. Um, it's still something that's on my list of things to read. Mm -hmm. Um, but I like that take of kind of the, the top down approach of the kind of controlling a large group. Right. Cause you really don't see that a lot in RPGs. Um, a lot of it is very much, you have your character and that's what you do. Right. Um, I think it would be very interesting to see kind of how that's laid out. Uh, one thing is because uh, how does it work in like a group setting? And that's what I I'm reading through it now because I do have the PDF. So I'm still kind of learning how this is going to work. So in the group setting, we're like in a typical RPG. If you have a mission or something that you want to uh, like, you're going to undertake instead of actually traveling to it, you can choose to kind of take a step back to that architect role and be like, no, 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 I have these guys, and I'm going to have them take care of that while we go do something else. So I'm still working on the story and how that's going to play out, but so far I like what I'm reading. It's definitely, again, different. The 2D20 system that they have, they kind of adapt it for for each individual game that uses it. So, um, And they already have Dune 2D20 dice. They have some really good-looking blue ones that are the melange <laughs> set, because I need more dice. Um, and then they actually have the Dune set. Um, it's just, I really enjoy the world. Now, I will, you can't talk about Dune without talking about some of the controversy that comes along with it, um, with the white savior kind of complex in the character of Paul Atreides, which in the original novel is the person that a lot of the focus of that novel 
is on. He is the son of House Atreides, and their sworn enemy, House Harkonnen, basically wipes out their house except for him and his mother. And he ends up escaping to the desert, which the book really borrowed a lot from like Bedouin society and Bedouin culture here on our planet um, and shared a lot of that. So there's this kind of, you know, you know, people that look at it like, oh, this white guy showed up and he led all the Fremen, you know, back in. And then he starts this global jihad, they actually call it in the book. So, again, really borrowing from language, you know, from our own Middle East. Um, I, I think what people miss in that one is, though, that Frank Herbert even said himself that Paul Atreides is not a hero. So the white guy shows up and he's got all the power from him not having to do anything and blah, blah, blah. And he actually says, no, no, no. Paul Atreides is a warning about people that show up as charismatic leaders that have too much power too fast and what they can do. You know, like I said, he starts a galaxy wide jihad. Billions of people die. But in this role playing setting, you can choose different houses. You can choose to be part of the Fremen. You can choose to be some other, you know, um, like a Mentat, which in the future that this represents, at one point, humanity rose up and got rid of computers. There's a ban on thinking machines. And to compensate, schools were developed where people were able to extend their own mental capacities and according to the book, even beyond what the computers that were ruling the world before we got rid of them are able to do. And they're known as mentats. Like I said, it is such a deep lore. I think it's hard not to be able to get into it and find something that you're going to like. Yeah, it sounds like it's definitely one of those. Um, you can, you can have your own story in one corner of the galaxy that maybe doesn't have anything to do with the like whole of what the original books were on, but there's enough lore and the galaxy is fleshed out enough to where you would be able to have your own little story over on the side, you know, campaign from beginning to end and never touch some of the other stuff. The setting uh, takes place right before the events of the first novel, which is, you know, Paul Atreides and the, his family taking over responsibility for the planet of Dune. But like you said, you could be another house, no, uh, you know, a minor noble house off to the side, and you've got your own plans because, well, it's a big universe. Yeah, that is one one thing I like. I enjoy very much uh, having an established setting, but then taking that and being able to just take one part of it and right. like build a story just in that one area that maybe has nothing to do with already previously told stories but there's enough there where you can fashion out you know the kind of game that you're looking for right all right the last one and i mean this one comes with some baggage so hold on uh we were actually over in the game store the other day because uh i needed a pick me up and i didn't feel like working on the podcast so we went to the game store And I came across Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. Now, Vampire is a setting that was originally done by White Wolf. And it is set in their world known as the World of Darkness, right? Because it included uh, Werewolf, Mages the Ascendant. Mage? Mage the Ascension? I didn't play that one very much, just in case you can't tell. Um, But Vampire the Masquerade was originally published in 1991. And what was unique about it was... You finally got to play the monster. The setting is this modern day setting, but it's the dark side that humans don't ever see. 
the history of vampires goes all the way back to Cain, according to their lore. And it was just, it was this really dark and gritty setting. And it, even in fifth edition, their, their fifth edition of it, it's still one of the first things you read about in the book is that it is a dark and gritty setting. There are no heroes at the game table. You may be a vampire that's trying to hold on to some of your humanity, but ultimately all of you survive by drinking the blood of humans. 1991, it was produced. Uh, that was when it was, or when it was first released. It's gone through, like I said, a couple of different editions, but there's also a lot of baggage around it. At one point, the producers of the game sued Underworld because the story of Underworld was really close to the story of the Masquerade. Um, and if you look at any, and I would say any major like True Blood or um, the Vampire Diaries, you see a lot of the stuff that you saw in the Masquerade game setting showing up. Like the vampires are ran by a noble kind of you know feudal setup that's known as the Camarilla that came out of Vampire and brought that in. So there's a little bit of baggage to go along with this game. Um, one thing too I do want to point out is. This is a very adult type setting. You have the potential to deal with real world issues. So more importantly than, uh, you know, with other games, you need to sit down and figure out with your players what's okay, what's not, what issues you're not going to touch. And what I like to, like I said, reading in the book, they actually address that. You know, I was like, hey, this is a dark setting. You're playing a vampire. That doesn't mean you have to be an asshole to your players. Right. Uh, so I've had the opportunity to play Werewolf a couple times. Uh, one of the one of my old DMs before I moved up here uh, had a couple different systems that he enjoyed playing. Werewolf was one of them. Also, Lamentations of the Flame Princess uh, was another one. But both of them were very much um, they were a much grittier setting than Five E, as well as they were a lot darker. Um, chances of survival were usually lower <laughs> that sort of thing uh, so it was a nice little mix up from our our usual 5e games uh, i do like that warning to dms reading this book is up front yeah um because if you don't know we advocate session zeros absolutely for every single game you should always go over the kind of game you want to run with all of your players as well as what the expectations are going into that game, what some of the topics may or may not be addressed and where you draw the line on certain things. Right. Um, being as we discussed at the very beginning, this is a collaborative experience. It's just as much the player's game as it is the DM's game. Those patches, my dog making her debut. Yep. So you have to make sure that, in those session zeros, you discuss with your player the type of game they're expecting because no one wants to show up to a table ready to play, you know, a happy go lucky, you know, I'm the superhero. I'm just going to run around and do all the great things. And then you show up and, oh, yeah, we're playing vampire. Yeah. And it's a completely different game. So that's one thing that I think is excellent. They put in the very beginning. Yeah that to really put that out there that this is important you go over with your players the kind of game this is going to be and in the back of the book it actually points you to a hey a list of possible topics because like i said you are playing in the dark underbelly of the world that you know we don't see every day so just to keep people grounded it says it's very it's very clear it's like hey remember it's a game so 
but I like that as an option, you know, and if you have an, an older group, you have a mature group that you're playing with that wouldn't mind, you know, playing as bloodsuckers and getting to experiment a little bit with that, you know, darker side of what they think things may be like, this may be a game for your table. So just a quick wrap up to go back, because we've talked a lot about a couple different things. Um, so back at the beginning, Coyote and Crow uh, just finished up Kickstarter. Um, they are taking pre-orders. Uh, you can find their information there on Kickstarter to pick up a copy of that and pre-order it. Uh, hardback copies looking at shipping in December of later this year. Uh, the other two are currently out right now uh, by Modifius Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dune has not released. It actually releases in May, but... You can get the PDF from Drive Through RPG. Okay, so you can at least get your hands on it. The actual print copy will be coming out next month, so that's excellent. And then, of course, Vampire has been around forever, but the new fifth edition should be hitting your friendly local game shop anytime. If they don't carry it, it's probably something they can order for you. So there you go. Give it a try. Let us know what you guys are playing. We will look forward to hearing from you. Now, in Games We Play, we're going to take a look at Rising Sun from Simon Games. Designed by Eric Lang and published by Simon, Rising Sun is a beautiful area majority game released in 2018 set in feudal Japan. In this game, players choose a clan to represent them on the board. Each clan has its own unique powers that influence various actions throughout the game. The goal of each clan is to gain the most victory points by the end of the game. Victory points are gained through a variety of ways, such as harvesting territories, buying cards, and winning battles. Gameplay is divided into four seasons. The first three seasons contain multiple rounds of play, and in the final season, players count up their victory points. The first round of each season involves a section called the Tea Ceremony. In this round, players decide if they are going to ally with another player or not. After alliances have been set, players move to the political phase. This phase is marked by the active player choosing a mandate that each other player must follow. After the mandate action has been resolved, the next player in order can choose a new mandate. Once all the spaces on the board have been filled, the game moves into the war phase. Rising Sun features a unique bidding system when resolving battles for territories. Players secretly bid coins that they have gained through the course of the season on four actions. After the bids are set, the one who bid the most on each action gets to perform that action. After the dust has settled, The player with the most units in a territory gains that territory. Lastly is seasonal cleanup before moving on to the next season. And during the final season, players tally up their victory points and the clan with the most points is victorious. So we picked this game up, uh, was it about a year ago? Years of change? It's it's been a while longer than that because it was almost eight months before we went to PAX. I think we originally got it. I think this is the game that started us down that road to PAX. Honestly, I know for me, you called me and you're like, hey, I found this board game and it's like the super Kickstarter has all the junk piece. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's buy that. And uh, then we lo- I looked at it online and I got to see pictures of it, uh, and we didn't get a chance to play it um, for a while. 
I don't think we actually played the game until we got to PAX. Because I remember having the discussion, we were going through the PAX schedule, and I was like, oh, look, Rising Sun, learn to play in tournament. That's cool. Maybe we can actually learn to play this game we spent 100 bucks on. <laughs> so uh, that was a uh, one of the, the things that really kicked us off about this game. Um, getting to sit there with some guys from that were working the booth for Simon, where they set us down, set up the game, kind of showed us how everything worked. And we were sitting on the Kickstarter version of this game, which has all the upgraded pieces, which if you look on our Instagram and Facebook, we posted some pictures that we took of kind of some of the upgraded parts of it. Uh, we also have the playmat, which right now is ridiculously priced uh, for anyone looking to buy one. We actually have that. Uh, we picked it up. Fortunately, found a really good deal at a local game store. Yep. You know, one more reason to shop there. Uh, but this game we picked up um, and we got to play it at PAX and then we played it um, quite a few times since then. Um, just kind of learning different things about the game because there's a lot to this game. Right, right. It was great for a game night. We had a couple of guys come over and just sit around the table and pull the board game out. I mean, it is a heavy game, though, just in terms of mechanics, I think. Especially for people who are not used to like some of the heavier modern board games. Right. It can be a little overwhelming. Uh, for me, first time seeing it, my first impression was, oh, look, it's Japanese Risk. That was exactly my first thoughts. And then once you get into it, learning the game, you find out it's it's a lot different. There's a lot more to it. It really illustrates the fact of how board games have really come a long way from some of the originals that we played growing up. You know, things like Risk, it was very straightforward. Right. Dudes on a map, you had dice, you rolled them until one side didn't have or didn't want to attack anymore. Whereas Rising Sun has this really cool bidding system where there is no like, you know, a bunch of small battles. It's you're all in on this one thing. Right. This is very much from the strategic standpoint. We're planning a, you know, countrywide war. Uh, Eric Lang is the designer on this and he's known for these kind of games isn't he yeah he has quite a few other highly recognized games underneath his belt blood rage being one of them okay yeah. um in fact Ankh, which is coming out really soon is kind of an egyptian version of dudes on a map where you get to worship or serve the egyptian gods um everything looks excellent on that one and of course simon the publisher they are known for these huge games with a bunch of very detailed minis zombicide being one of the franchises that they head up uh, those kind of things so going into it um when i first saw it i had heard about the game i hadn't really seen a whole lot on it or played a whole lot on it this was kind of when i was first really starting to dig into new board games um, I found it at my local game store and they had the Kickstarter version and I was like, absolutely. They had it for a hundred bucks, which was the actual like buy-in price on the Kickstarter, right. which you never find that kind of thing with Kickstarter games. It's always more expensive um, than what the original buy-in price was. Um, we were able to find it. Uh, we got it. We finally played it. Um, so let's talk about some of our thoughts on it. Um, so let's start off with value. So first off, there's a lot of game in this box. The base game comes with five different clans that you can play as. Each one has their own variable player powers that are different from the others. So you can really kind of tailor your gameplay around which clan you choose. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that was a little hesitant for me is it is a three player plus game. 
So you have to have those initial three players, which at times, especially right now, can be difficult to get that many people together. But it's still definitely worth it. I mean, especially like starting out like with the tea ceremony, one of the first things you do each of the seasons, which is, you know, your game, how gameplay rolls is you make alliances or you break alliances and you get an opportunity to say, hey, I'll work with you. You work with me. And um, there are actually some there and it's a game mechanic. There's actually a symbol that you hook together, your symbol and then whoever you're uh, allied with. So, yeah, you definitely need three people or more to get it going to actually have a good game. I think that does bring up an interesting point of kind of where this game plays at best with kind of players. The one thing that I do think um, to finish up with value, um, there's a lot of replayability in this box uh, because you don't use all of the cards that are in the box every game. So you have both the, the Kami, which are the gods that you can worship. You only have four spots on the board for those. And there are, I believe, eight or nine different ones. So the ability to kind of switch those out is there. As well, of course, the multiple clans you can choose. But also the market cards, you don't use all the ones that come in the box. You can actually mix and match and choose those. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just the base game. Um, Of course, the Kickstarter version comes with extra things for the market because there were a bunch of monster minis and things like that that came out in the extra. Um, Just for reference, the Kickstarter box that was all the extra pieces was as big as the original game box. Yeah, and I think you can see that on the uh, on our Instagram. We took some pictures of it right there together, and it's just it just doubles in size. Right. Uh, So that brings us back to value. Uh, Being the type of game it is, this is not a game you break out probably every you know other night. You want to plan a night probably around this, right? You want to get a couple hours ready. Yeah, especially if you have to teach, um, because that's going to take some time to kind of get people familiar. You're going to want to kind of go through the phases with them, that sort of thing. So uh, this is definitely one of those that you want to sit down and kind of prep for. That being said, I think the replayability, the value of what is actually in this box um, is definitely there. So I would go with a solid eight out of 10, I think. I could see that. And like you said, what is the what is the Kickstarter or I'm sorry, what is the base game run right now? I believe right now you can find it for around 80 bucks, yeah. something like that for the base game. Um, like I said, we are very fortunate to find the Kickstarter version for 100. Right. Uh, right now, just going price on the Kickstarter version is usually around 180. So but there are a lot of really good upgrades that the Kickstarter version brought to it. If you're one of those people, again, who like to have, you know, decked out games, the accessorized version, yeah, it, it turns a lot of the cardboard pieces into actual like plastic pieces, uh, which is very, very depending on whether or not that's important to you. Sure. And I mean, uh, the base game itself, you can the, the Kickstarter version adds a lot of lots of bells and whistles to it, but it's still the same game. So you're still able to play with the base game and I mean, fully enjoy everything this was designed for. So yeah, I definitely agree. Eight out of 10 as far as value, it's definitely worth it. Uh, So next we get into, speaking of kind of what the Kickstarter upgrades is components. Uh, This is kind of difficult for us. We do have both sets of components because you do get both sets. Right. Um, We've only really played with the Kickstarter version uh, because once you go to that, there is no reason to There's no going back. There's no going back. There's no reason to pull out all the cardboard bits. 
so as far as the Kickstarter version goes, uh, first of all, I love the uh, pieces with the tea ceremony that you're talking about, the yin and yang pieces. Right. Uh, the cast that they did on those are really cool. They're all in the different colors of the different clans, which is really nice. Um, all the other pieces that they turned into plastic, like the Ronin pieces, the honor pieces, um, even the little flags to tell you which areas are going to go to battle each time. Right. Uh, all of those are excellent. I mean, that's what you expect from a Kickstarter. So I, I think when it comes to components from the Kickstarter version, I would give them I would give them a nine because, again, the miniatures are excellent, too. They are very well detailed. It's what we've come to expect, though, from Simon. Sure. Honestly, they have kind of built reputation on this. Their name used to be Cool Mini or Not, so it's kind of in the name. Uh, they've shortened that now, of course, but that that's their jam. That's what they do. If you go look at our Instagram, we took some photos of it and kind of laid everything out. So you can see, and you, if you look at the miniatures, they are, they're just really well detailed. We have one army that's painted. We're going to get to the other ones. It's been on the to-do list for two years. I'm sure it's going to happen eventually. Um, if anybody knows a painter, then make some money, let me know. Um, but definitely want to get those done. But even without painting them, just the minis come out and they're really detailed. You can look at them up close and see like all the work that's gone into those. So some of the best components of some of the you know of, of all the games that we have i think this one is really really good so for the rating for components nine out of ten um easily i mean they're just good when we start talking about the standard components i think you're still looking at, at like a solid seven they're cardboard you know they're pretty standard but they're solid right everything is you know printed really well it looks good it Again, it's just not that extra level that you expect from like a Kickstarter, which is fine. Right. I, I think there it doesn't take away for me. I don't think that takes away from like a gameplay aspect. Nope. It's just extra. Right. Right. Let's just talk gameplay. Um, like we said, this is a very heavy game. There's a lot of mechanics. It's very structured. It, um, you know, you go through your four seasons. You know, in each season, you play the same way and it works its way around the table. Uh, you talked a little bit about the bidding system. Like, I think really get into that for when we're talking about combat. This system is unique to any other game that I've ever played. Uh, I've never seen... Normally, when you have combat, it's normally decided by dice or something along those lines. Um, but this system... So each player has kind of a screen set up in front of them that has their clan on it. It has kind of their clan special ability, kind of that good player aid that you want in every game. It tells you kind of the introduction to the seasons, what you're supposed to have, as well as what your player power is, that sort of thing. But you use that to hide a small board that has four little spots on it. Now, the known information that each player involved in the battle knows is how many coins the other players have and how many of the Ronin, which are like the hired soldiers the other player has. So that way, you know, going into it exactly what you're up against, but how they are going to actually implement those is unknown. With the bidding system, there are four different spots that you can choose from. I like this because it's not just a, I'm going to attack you with everything I have. You can actually have all of your troops commit suicide and you still gain points. Right. So obviously this game is based um, on the kind of Japan feudal setting. 
which honor is a big deal in that setting. And everything in this game resolves around what's called the honor track. And depending on where you are on the honor track determines um, the breaking of ties, like your who goes first, all sorts of things like that. Right. Um, so doing actions, which normally we would look at and go, how are you going to win the battle that way? You still gain points and you actually move up on the honor track for doing all these right. kind of interesting actions. Right. Like I said, you can mass suicide your troops. You can take hostages. You know, it, you get you got a lot of options, and you make a bid with your opponent, and then when you're both ready, you lift your screen to see who wins the bid. Right, and at the end of the after you work through all four choices, whoever has the most troops left in the province actually wins the province, which is not always the most points. Right, um, depending on how the battle goes. Um, and then whoever loses the province actually gets all the coins that were bid during the battle. Right. So you're able to actually sometimes both get more points and come out with more coins than your opponent did, which usually makes them not very happy. Gameplay on this is really, like we said, it's strategic. It's not, you can't be thinking about, you know, this one battle in this one season. Like you need to play a couple of steps ahead. So you're thinking, all right, I'm going to give this up and I'm going to let them, you know, take this, but I'm doing it to do either martial forces or to get things ready and be able to come back, you know, come out swinging. That is one thing I like about the gameplay is you are able to see what specific provinces are going to go to war in this season. Right. So you can really plan out your whole strategy of where you're going to commit like your resources to try to do whatever you're trying to do. I know, I know one of the clans, their special ability is you can, um, before the war phase, you can basically just put an individual unit in whatever province you want to, uh, which allows you to take part in these other battles, um, which then in turn, you probably aren't going to win any battles with that one unit, but it allows you to gain incremental victory points through these different battles, uh, which in the end makes a big difference. So for gameplay, I think I would give it, I would give it a solid eight. Yes. It's not my favorite game out of all the games we've played and that I've played, but it is definitely up there when I'm looking for something kind of heavier to play. Right. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. An eight sounds really good. And it's for the same reason is it's not that there's anything wrong with the gameplay. It's I've got to be mentally ready to play this game because it's going to be a couple hours and it's going to be a lot of mental exercise into the what might happen. So um, solid eight, easy. Replayability. So we kind of touched on this in value because um, I think this is kind of an integral part when you're considering value of a game. Mm-hmm. Um, but replayability on this, uh, I think it depends on a couple things. Um, first off is the group you're playing with. Right. Um, I feel like if you play with the same people over and over, it might become a little stale, especially if your players that you're playing with commit to certain strategies. Right. Or certain clans. Yes. Um, there are multiple clans, of course. There's a different five in the base game you can choose from that all act a little bit differently. I know one of them, my favorite one, the turtle clan, you can actually move your fortresses because they're on the backs of giant turtles. Um, one of my favorites, but a little, a little known historical fact from feudal Japan. Yeah. Had giant tortoises who know, but the replayability I think is still pretty high. Mm-hmm. Just given all the options you have as far as the clans go and just the way the game could possibly play out. Right. Cause 
it, it's pretty random on what territories actually battle each time because you shuffle that and pull that randomly. As well as I said before, the market can be different and even the kami are different each time. Right. I think that that has a huge part of the replayability for me. Just that there is a random aspect of this game as well when you're determining what is going, which territories are going to go to battle um, in each season. So um, I think gameplay is a good is a good solid eight. Um, there's not much else they can do to it, but you can play this several times. You can play this with different people. You can play this, you know, try try each of the clans out, you know, and find out what they do and what kind of fits to your play style. I think I would probably go seven on replayability um, just because it is still the same game um, that I could see being um, eventually being mentally taxing. Yeah. As far as wanting to play in that regards, I like the randomness where it's at. Uh, A lot of people have trouble with randomness in games that like causes you to lose. And that's not really something you get in this game. No, Uh, No, your decisions are strategic. The only thing, like you, if you lose, you're going to be outplayed. It's not a luck of the draw right. that you lose. So uh, that's one thing I think I do definitely enjoy about this game. So uh, overall rating, um, just kind of off the cuff, what would you give? I like this game. Um, like I said, we've broke it out for game nights. Uh, we had a couple people over. Um, it is a heavy game, like we said over and over again. Uh, so like I said, I have to be ready to sit down and play it. It's not like I'm going to, it's not like a game we can just pull out, throw down and, you know, clean up's easy and stuff. You are, (laughs) it's going to take some time to set it up, take it down. Um, but it's worth it if you're in the mood for that kind of thing. Overall, um, I mean, really, I feel like a good solid seven or eight, um, just with everything that we've talked about. Right. The game is absolutely beautiful. Like there is no doubt about it. The artwork and stuff on the play mat and on even the original board like, yeah, is is amazing. Uh, they did a really good job with that. Uh, so it's it's definitely easy to look at, uh, but don't let that you know th- throw you off because there is still a lot of game in this game. Uh, I would say overall, I would give it an eight. Uh, it is definitely one of those games that I do enjoy. Like I said, it's not quite the top of my list, but it's definitely higher than a lot of things I've played. When I'm in the mood for a heavier kind of dudes on a map game, this is one of the ones that I look to go to. So there you are, Rising Sun by Simon Games. Hey, if it sounds like something you're interested in, get your hands on the base set, give it a try, and let us know what you think. So if you found us either here or on social media, Facebook and Instagram, you have undoubtedly seen our logo. This was designed by a friend of ours, Shannon, who lives in Florida. She's retired Navy and she has started up her own business. So we wanted to take an opportunity to say thank you and to maybe point you in her direction. She's a fantastic artist. I enjoyed working with her when I was in uniform. Uh, So her Etsy shop that she's just started is Steel Beach Arts, S-T-E-E-L-B-E-A-C-H. And for those of you that don't know, in the Navy, when ships are out to sea, occasionally we will take a day and like barbecue up on the deck and maybe play some sports and things like that. Just kind of get to de-stress the crew. Those are known as steel beach picnics. 
So her Etsy shop is named after that, where she does chainmail jewelry and some occasional paintings in acrylic and oil. Definitely check her out on Facebook, and I will be sure to put the link in the show description, Steel Beach Arts, so you can get a chance to support a veteran-owned small business. I'm sure she will absolutely appreciate the traffic, so go check it out. Welcome to the very first segment of Know Your Character. So the idea behind this segment is all of us have played games and we play characters that we just really enjoy. From my very first D&D game, there were characters that kind of came to life and we have used them again and again repeatedly as NPCs. That's what this segment is about. What we ultimately want to hear is about your characters and we will have a forum up on our Facebook page that you can look at, put the information that I need to talk about. If we use your character on one of our podcasts, we'll be sure to send you the official Dapper Meeple lapel pin, a little incentive to get involved and uh, let us know about your character. The first character that we have for you is Freak, F-R-I-E-K, is it researcher and lead assistant to Rao Zarek. So Freak is a 5th edition character in the setting of Ravnica. Freak is a goblin, and his class or specialty is the Artificer Artillerist. Now, I have a video of me rolling the stats for this because Josh let us roll stats, and I'm glad I had the video because nobody would have believed them otherwise. Strength 10, Dex 18, Con 18, Intelligence 20, Wisdom 16, and Charisma 14. I believe that was at level 12? Yes. Okay. I do remember you started out with two 18s and like two 16s. So it was it was something along those lines that was pretty pretty ridiculous. His background is the Izzet Engineer. Now, this was a campaign that we ran in Ravnica, which is a setting from Magic the Gathering. And basically, the city of Ravnica, which... It encompasses a huge area and is ran by 10 guilds. Uh, the Izzet are one of them, and each of us had to pick a guild to be part of. Uh, for proficiencies, uh, Freak is proficient in Arcana, History, Investigation, Perception, Tinkering Tools, Gunsmithing Tools, and Woodworking. So with this character, we really wanted to capture kind of the feel of the is it guild uh which those of you who are familiar with magic the gathering ravnica is one of the most beloved settings out of all of them they've ever done just because of the sheer craziness that happens within the guilds and all sort of those things the is it guild is one of my personal favorites because they are all about experimentation uh, they are one side of a coin that deals with kind of science and research within the city. Uh, their approach to science is more of a let's develop this and test it out before we really have an idea of what it's going to do. Right. Uh, one of my favorite art things from this uh, the whole set in Ravnica is the goblin test pilot, uh, which shows a goblin with a crazy contraption on his head flying on kind of a rocket looking thing. Uh, and it really encompasses the whole idea that the Izzet are not really sure of what's going to happen with the things they invent. It's more of a let's throw it together and see what happens sort of attitude. 
So for a description, Freak was just under four feet tall and had made some odd choices for a goblin. Most notably, instead of being barefoot, which, according to uh, the Ravnica setting, is pretty common, um, he always had a finely crafted pair of boots. His hair was dark and coarse, and he wore it in a stylish mohawk. His teeth were also more like a human or a Vidalcan, so he is a goblin with veneers instead of the gnarly fashion that's normally associated with goblins. He was one of eight siblings, which he and his sister were exceptional, and they were both incredibly intelligent. Some of his family got to play into the uh, Ravnica storyline. He had There was a set of twins that went to the Rakdos because they were exceptionally good at keeping blades sharp and coming up with devious traps. Uh, his sister also went to... She went to the Simic Guild. She was the uh, Simic Guild. She was a bioengineer for them. Right. Um, having to do with the Guardian Project, uh, which basically made a lot of um, creatures to protect and to defend the city. This intelligence kind of led Freak to pursue his love of science, where he found the Izzet League of Ravnica. The guild's approach to blowing something up and then explaining why that happened really speaks to his soul. Kind of the playstyle character motivation. Uh, Freak was very much a, I do what my gut tells me. If there was a rash but intelligent decision to be made, Freak would make it. Uh, he was in love with being a scientist as an artificer and adventuring. Freak was definitely one of those characters uh, that was a joy to watch grow and also move the game. Uh, like we talked about in the very beginning of this episode, um, players that interact with the game are what we want, what we look for. And having a character that is as dynamic as Freak is um, definitely makes for exciting sessions. One of the quotes that was on the character sheet is, if there's a plan, I'll probably forget it. And if I don't, I'll probably just ignore it. So if somebody was wanting to use Freak as an NPC, where would be a good place for him, for the party to find Freak? So one of the things about Freak is we had him, he was an artillerist um, and he did use a firearm, which is not in all settings and that's fine. Uh, I think there is a place for, I, I don't know that I would quite call him a mad scientist because um, he doesn't quite fit that trope necessarily. Sure. Um, but definitely a character who pushes the boundaries of what is probably considered okay. Safe fair uh when it comes to experimentation sure um and not not in the way like he's capturing people and experimenting on them more he is finding things that explode and that make pretty lights and things like that usually to the detriment of those within five feet sure sure definitely a uh, intelligent character with that kind of childlike wonder of what color will this blow up um, as an NPC in your game, um, Freak would make not only a good, I, I think especially a good like side quest giver, mm -hmm. right? Perhaps he needs uh, some new items for his experiments, whether it be, you know, something that will actually cause an explosion or maybe something that needs to be exploded. Um, perhaps he could be a character with a solution to a problem say the players need to get into the BBG's, you know, castle and they find this goblin out in the middle of, you know, this rock quarry. 
by the sound <laughs> of the explosions that he's making. Uh, yeah, I picture that as kind of the the Mythbusters when they when they got in trouble for causing the explosions out. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing Freak would be caught doing. Right, I, I could see him definitely being something along those lines um, as well, depending on where your your campaign takes place. Sure. Uh, I think he definitely has potential in a steampunk setting mm-hmm. um, since that's a lot of kind of what Ravnica can be yep. uh, very, very easily. Uh, I see him fitting perfectly in there uh, and uh, as well as even in a more like fantasy setting, um, you could almost tweak him to be more of the, kind of wizard archetype um and be able to go with that i i think his personality is really what sets him apart if you have a character that may be multi-classing into a gunslinger or something like that uh one of his storylines was that he had invented firearms and as the invasion into ravnica by the big bad evil guy comes in uh freak was arming small platoons of volunteers so Definitely something that if you need to learn firearms, he could be that NPC to teach it. I think that's um, that's definitely a good inclusion, a good place for him to be kind of inserted in. Uh, so lastly, with him, I guess, if there is one thing about him that you shouldn't change, right? What is the one thing that you would say makes Freak who he is? I think that uh, Freak being as intelligent as he was, was a source of pride for him, since most goblins are not known for taking that route and being able to perform. Um, and I think he took it as a matter of pride that he was recognized by Rao Zarek, who was the leader of the Izzet Guild. Um, eventually. Far, eventually, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so... When he introduced himself, it was always the very long title and introduction of is it researcher freak, lead assistant to Rouse Eric, blah, blah, blah. Like he would post his titles. And I think those accomplishments due to his intelligence was a big part of it. It wasn't it wasn't haughty. It wasn't boastful. It was just this is what I've done. And then we can move on. Right. I think that's what sets him apart, because. He even in the Ravnica setting, goblins are a part of like the different more science guilds. But I think to have that kind of intelligence that Freak had sets him apart from that normal kind of stigma that goblins have. There you go. Is it researcher Freak? Feel free to change the guild if you need to put him in the setting that you are playing in. And we're looking forward to hearing from you. Send us information on your characters and we can talk about where they may fit in. All right. And now Kickstarter roundup. So this time we got a couple projects. I think last time we really focused on some smaller projects um, that really needed some love, which I did see some of them did get funded. So that's always good news. Not really anything that we did, but it's always good to see smaller projects like that make their funding goals. Right. Uh, we have a couple that are already funded. They're pretty large projects. Um, we do have one that is a little bit smaller. Uh, so we'll start with probably one of the most popular ones. If you are into Kickstarter and board gaming, you've probably seen this one. Uh, we're talking about the Game Toppers 3.0 Kickstarter. So if you don't know, Game Toppers is a company that makes an alternative to expensive board game tables. Uh, those of you who have seen some of the stuff coming out of Wormwood Gaming as well as Rathskettler, 
all of them have very, very expensive tables. I, I love the Ratskettler tables, but I, I can't bring myself to spend like five grand on a table right now. Exactly. So Game Toppers has come up with uh, something that's a little more middle ground. They create a full game topper that can go on top of any table and give you that same board game table feel. Uh, now, they do start at $3.99 for their base table set, but it's a lot cheaper than what you would normally spend for an actual board game table. And now, a lot of people have gone to building their own tables recently, but if you don't have any woodworking skill, that may not be an option for you. Um, so this is definitely a, something you should look into. Um, as well as, in addition to their actual toppers, they also sell their high-quality mats um, that you are made to actually go in the toppers to kind of switch up what you have there as the top. Um, but you can also purchase them separately as well if you just need a large play mat to run from there. Uh, it's a good little starting point to go with that. Right. I really like that. I'm looking at some of the mats they have um, where you can just change the look of your table. So if you're playing fantasy games or if you're playing board games or, you know, even poker, you can just swap that mat out and you've got a new tabletop ready to go. Right. So one of the other things I like with their game toppers is they actually have um, like component trays and things like that that tie into the side of the table, just like one of the fancy tables that is a full package. Um, you can also get tops for them to cover up so you can leave the table set up on top and you can just cover it up to eat on top of it or do whatever you need to. Some of the playmats that they have currently have some artwork done by some rather famous uh, board game artists. Uh, one of them in particular is Vincent Dutrait. Uh, the uh, The game topper that they have for that one is called The Great Wall. And just looking at the artwork of it is excellent. All of Vincent Dutrait's artwork is the same kind of theme style. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, he does a lot of a lot of board game art. He's been around for a long time and everything that he does is excellent. That's one of the mats that they actually have for the game topper right now. Uh, some of the other ones are based, uh, they have like a scythe based map. They also have one kind of based off of Ryan Lockett's game, Sleeping Gods. There are a lot of options to choose from. There are also base colors as well. If you're kind of just into a normal looking mat, um, there's also some more fantasy themed ones as well. Uh, all of that is available in their Kickstarter. They've unlocked quite a few stretch goals. Um, so definitely something to take a look at if any of this kind of thing interests you. All right. So the next one we want to talk about is the smaller project of the three. Uh, this is actually a set of D&D &D class pins. Uh, they are acrylic pins. One of the things that I love to do is I collect a lot of pins. It kind of started with when my wife and I went to Disney World. Disney pin collecting is a huge thing. Uh, both of us have the large, wide lanyards covered in pins all the way up and down. So this is definitely one of those things that I enjoy. This Kickstarter, which we'll have linked to in the show notes, um, are just 35mm D&D class-themed acrylic pins. Uh, right now, the Kickstarter is currently not funded. It's sitting at... $1,399 out of $1,850 of the goal. So it's not too far behind. Um, it just needs a little help to get there. Uh, currently, they have all 12 classes that you can choose from. 
Um, it's very reasonable. You can get one pin for 10 bucks is the base level that you can pledge at to actually get something. If you go up from there, if you get two pins, you get a $20 for two pins and you get two stickers as well of whatever the two pins are you choose. So very straightforward. If you choose the barbarian and the bard pin, you're going to get a barbarian and bard sticker. Nice and easy, nice and straightforward. Uh, now these are acrylic pins, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, so they aren't like the soft enamel; they do have kind of like the bubble finish on them. Okay. Um, but they are very cool artwork. I I like all the different classes about it. All right. So one of the things they have is in the stretch goals. If they reach two thousand dollars, they have a dungeon master pin, uh, which looks very interesting. If they get there, it's definitely something that I'll probably look at picking up. You can get individual pins as well as individual stickers um, for the various price points um, within the Kickstarter. Uh, like I said, this one does need a little bit of love to get there, um, but I'm sure that wouldn't be a problem. It still has a few days left on it, um, 11 days as of the time of recording. Um, so there's still a little bit of time for them to get there. They are pretty close to it. Yeah, May 11th, the campaign ends. So the last... Uh, one that we have to cover today is a 5e setting. Um, now, I don't know how you feel about these when it comes to RPGs. Um, I kind of enjoy, as we talked about before, having a new setting to play with sure. within a current kind of rule set that I am familiar with. Right. I like that. Like As much as I like trying out a new system, when you've got a group together and everybody just wants to, you know, do that. It wants to play a system that they already know, but in a new world. I love that idea. I think that's great. So this one is called Comets and Cockpits. Uh, it is a 5e setting that is, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is a, a junker space genre, I guess is the kind of the way they describe it in the um, Kickstarter. So about this Kickstarter, they are actually trying to start two different books. Um, it depends on kind of the type of game that you want to play. Uh, one of them is a massive unexplored world with ancient artifacts and locations, um, kind of a grittier atmosphere. Uh, the other book is a lot of Magitech, mechs, and starships. Uh, so it's kind of that more space exploration mixed with magic type genre. I looked over this one and it looks really good. A lot of people may not be into the fantasy setting. That's pretty common with 5th edition. So, I mean, this is a good break from that. And so they're funded, and I think they're starting to hit stretch goals now. Yes. Um, as far as pledge levels go, um, the base level to where you begin to get product is at $15. Uh, that guarantees you a PDF of either book one or book two, your choice. Uh, they do go up from there. Uh, $25 gets you... One book in PDF and then one book in hardcover. So you can actually get both books for 25 bucks, uh, which is unheard of in most RPGs. I was going to say, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Um, so one of them is a obviously a PDF and one of them is actually going to be um, in book form. For 25 bucks. you really can't beat that deal. Hey, friends, do you not have the hundreds of thousands of dollars it would take to back all of the Kickstarter games that you want? <laughs> Me either. Have you missed a few where you just kind of think about them at night right before you fall asleep? 
well, I may have a solution for you. So while we were looking for game shops in the Hampton Roads area, I came across this website, upstartboardgamer.com, all one word. It was started by a guy here in the Hampton Roads, Virginia Beach area. He has since retired from the Navy and moved to New York, but the site is still up and running. And what it is, a site dedicated to Kickstarter games that people may have missed. So you can go on there and look at his inventory, see what he has. And for those games where you just didn't get the pledge in or you just didn't have it, or we all know, anybody that's involved in Kickstarter knows, um, you can look at what he's got. And he's got a, a list of what's coming in and what he's got out available and things like that. Great idea. I talked to him a little bit over Messenger. I just wanted to make sure the website was still up and running and that he was still in business. Um, but upstartboardgamer.com. Go check it out. Uh, see if there's something there that you may have missed. And it's a great opportunity to kind of get your hands on a Kickstarter version of one of these games. And with that, our last trains are on the board and it's time to tally up the points. For the Dapper Meeple, I've been Jim. And I'm Josh. Good night. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around and listening to our show. Hey, if you enjoyed what we're doing here, follow us and leave a like. It really helps us out. And if you have anything to say back to us, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook at the Dapper Meeple or at dappermeeplegaming at gmail.com. And as always, we'll save you a seat at the table.